Welcome to Straight Thinking, a GPS for the Christian mind, teaching you how to think, not just what to think. This is Joe Aguirre with theologian and philosopher Kenneth Samples and physicist Dave Rogstad. On today's podcast, how to defend the doctrine of the incarnation. Uh, Ken, many people feel ill-equipped to answer the door when the Watchtower people show up. Uh, today, we'll learn how to feel confident when a Jehovah's Witness or anyone else uh, challenges the deity of Christ. Well, that's right, Joe. I mean, as I was thinking about uh, the content of our, our programs here, I, I was thinking that the incarnation is uh, it's a lightning rod. I mean, for example, um, I think the incarnation needs to address the atheist challenge that God is hidden I'm not sure how God could be hidden if he makes a presence in time and space. But as you noted, it, it's raised about cults. Uh, Jehovah's Witnesses are a modern expression of the Arian heresy. They deny both the Trinity and the deity of Christ. And, and then, of course, there are people in our multicultural context. They're not happy with the Incarnation because they'd like to have uh, more of a pluralist, inclusivist, uh, point of view. And, th and then there are liberal theologians, Joe, that say that the incarnation uh, is not something that Jesus believed. Uh, Jesus was deified over centuries. So this is a very, uh, it, it's a very important Christian doctrine, but also a very important apologetic to to understand and be able to defend. And as you point out, uh, if you're not interested in, in going out to talk to people, they'll come to you and knock on your door. Yeah. Well, this is part one of two on this topic. Yeah, uh, I was just, uh, as you're talking there, I was wondering if the Jehovah's Witnesses have started knocking on doors again, because I don't think they were during the pandemic, unless they've been coming to your neighborhood. They, they haven't come to mine. Do you know anything about that? Well, I, I think that's probably right. I, I have had a couple of visits over the last few months. Maybe they're... Oh, okay. So they have resumed. Okay. Yeah. I'm, I'm thinking that... Uh, and, and of course, what's interesting is I have people knock on my door, and, and I never know where they're kind of coming from religiously. And I, I think it's just interesting how, uh, you know, if you're not interested in talking to people, they're still interested in talking to you. Mm -hmm. Yep. <laughs> Well, these days I get more of the solar power people than Jehovah's Witnesses. <laughs> anyway, go ahead. Well, I, I think a place to begin is I came across a quotation that, that really struck me. It's by the great uh, evangelical Anglican J.I. Packer. Uh, it's from his classic, his contemporary classic book. And this is this is a very significant book written in the 20th century called Knowing God, uh, published initially by InterVarsity Press. And uh, I remember reading that decades ago. And uh, one way or another, I came across, I think, on social media, this quotation. And it's something I believed for a long time. So when I read what Packer wrote, I thought, wow, I, I want to talk about that. Packer said, the more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. Mm. And I've, I've definitely thought that. I, you know, I, I, uh, I have to say I'm, 
I, I think I get as much out of history as other people get out of fiction and fantasy. Uh, I remember when my wife and I, we, we've gone to the, uh, the Queen Mary a number of times. Of course, this is that, that great uh, ship that was used in America during the time of the Civil War before and after. Then, of course, it uh, became a hotel uh, out there in Long Beach. And my wife and I have gone out there and uh, visited there and uh, spent a few nights there. And what I really enjoyed was discovering all the, the, the uh, historical people who had ridden on the boat. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, Winston Churchill, uh, John F. Kennedy. And what I like about history is it, it makes me feel uh, excited when somebody says, you know, this really happened. Uh, this wasn't made up. It was something that actually happened. And I, I remember when I was in Virginia with my son, Michael, and we went into uh, one of the homes of Robert E. Lee, the great general for the Confederacy during the Civil War. So we're walking up the stairs and my, my son stops and he, he looks back at me, he says, Dad, Robert E. Lee's hand touched right here. Hmm. And it's just a sense that, you know, this happened. Uh, this wasn't kind of made up. And if you think about it, and Joe and Dave, I don't remember if you remember this, and I may be dreaming it, but I remember being at an RTB conference where one of our science faith scholars said that um, uh, Neil Armstrong uh, was a Christian and that he heard him say that it's a great thing for men to walk on the moon, but it's a greater thing for God to walk on the earth. Now, I have to tell everybody who's listening, I've never been able to find that quote. And I don't even remember exactly who said it, but, but it struck me. Uh, unfortunately, uh, Armstrong was very quiet about most things. Uh, I think he found fame to be difficult uh, and didn't talk a lot about his faith, but somebody said he said that. And that's the kind of thing I think we're talking about here with J.I. Packer. You know, think about the idea, God who is outside of time and space, God who is uh, a, a, not a physical being, he's a spiritual reality, uh, a spiritual being. I believe God is timeless, so he is independent of time. Uh, but then the second person of the Trinity enters into time and space, into history, takes a human nature. Um, and that's, of course, why we divide history. You know, before Christ came, A.D., uh, in the year of our Lord. And uh, I think that's right. I mean, what else could be more amazing, fantastic, than the idea that God walked the earth? What, what do you guys think about that? Just, it, to me, it's just absolutely incredible. You know, the more you... I mean, coming from the point of view of a scientist, where you kind of have discovered, at least to some degree, the amazing design and characteristics of the universe in which we live, its features, uh, that you know, that the, the heavens declare the glory of God, all of those kinds of things that just make it overwhelming to think that there's a God in heaven that not only figured all this stuff out and created it, but he cares about me. And then to think that he came down 
and as a man and interacted with us as human beings. I just find it overwhelming to think about that and just can't help but just worship and praise God. Amen. Yeah, it brings to mind uh, one of my favorite Christmas songs. You know, I, I won't get the lyric right, but one of the verses says something along the line along the lines of uh, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see, hail the incarnate deity, uh, pleased as man with men to dwell, Jesus our Emmanuel. Uh, Great that's song. Just, it, yeah, it's just along those lines, Dave. It's really remarkable. Well, if you think about it now, I mean, this, this, is really, uh, this is really the Christian message. It's the Christian story. Um, you know, you think about Judaism and Islam, both of them, and of course, now I'm speaking of traditional Judaism, not Messianic Judaism that believes that Jesus is the Messiah, but traditional Judaism doesn't accept the idea of the incarnation. Uh, neither, neither does Islam. Uh, this kind of rattles the feathers of uh, Muslim apologists. And I don't think there's really anything in any of the other religions that comes close to this. Now, some people might say in Hinduism, you have avatars, which is an appearance of the divine in the world. But what's different there is, of course, uh, it could all be mythology. Um, and uh, in, in, in Hinduism, an avatar could take the form of an animal. Uh, it's, it could take the form of other uh, beings here on planet Earth, but the idea that God would become a man or take a human nature uh, and live in the world. Uh, and of course, I think this has so much import theologically, philosophically, uh, apologetically. I mean, when it comes to the problem of pain, suffering, and evil, what comforts me greatly is that uh, the second person of the Trinity took a human nature. Jesus knows what it's like to suffer. Uh, as we'll see in a few minutes, in fact, God suffered through his human nature, uh, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. Well, if God, God understands suffering, and, uh, you know, this morning I was looking up some of the passages in Scripture where Jesus is at Gethsemane, and he says, you know, uh, I know I signed up for this role, but maybe if there could be a change of plans— uh, but he says, ultimately, not my will, but thine be done. And then, of course, the apostles, they're asleep. And uh, talk, about, talk about aloneness or loneliness. Um, you know, talk about a, a, a sense of alienation. This is a very powerful teaching. And as I mentioned before, remember that uh, some atheists now are suggesting that the biggest argument against God is not the problem of evil, although they see the hiddenness of God as maybe a, a component of the problem of evil. But there are, the, there are atheists today who say the biggest uh, obstacle to God is the hiddenness of God. Mm. And I don't think Christians should uh, back up on the incarnation. I think we should uh, go forward and say that the historic message of Christianity is that God has made an appearance in the world. And, and of course, uh, the liberal theologians now for a number of centuries have said, 
this was not the teaching of early Christianity. Mm. Um, they believed that Jesus was deified. Uh, Bart Ehrman, who was at one time an evangelical, lost his faith, now has become a skeptic, uh, atheist, says the church deified Christ. Uh, and and I, I mentioned again that among the world's religions, this is inconsistent with monotheism. Uh, it it is a difficult thing for pluralists to accept because they want all the religions to be true. But if Jesus is God and has made an appearance in the world, uh, then we need to pay attention to him and, and to him alone. And then, of course, uh, Joe, as you mentioned, there are the cults. Uh, all of the Aryan new religious movements, the Christadelphians, the Jehovah's Witnesses, various forms of Unitarianism uh, deny the deity of Christ. So I think, uh, I love what Packer said. Um, I, I think that, you know, I've learned to, in, to appreciate and enjoy the uh, fiction and the fantasy of people like C.S. Lewis and uh, Tolkien. But as Tolkien told Lewis, uh, the incarnation, it's the true myth. It's, uh, it's the mythical idea of God visiting earth, but actually happened uh, in time and space. So I thought we would uh, begin here. Uh, Joe, Let me uh, make just one comment with regard to your issue of hiddenness of God. In, in recent studies where we were studying portions of John's gospel, the thing that really struck me was Jesus' statement, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. Mm -hmm. That's just, if you want to know anything about God, if you want to find out what he thinks about different things, go to Jesus. He says, when you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And it just seems to me that that sort of flies in the face of the notion that God is hidden. He's not hidden. He's, yeah. he, he revealed himself. Yeah, there are certain things. I mean, God is God, after all. So he's certainly going to have aspects of him that we, are, we can't comprehend. But he has revealed himself, the essential components of himself that we need to know in order to come into a relationship with him. And that's ultimately in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you think about it, uh, he speaks of uh, Yahweh Elohim. Remember, Jesus is a Jew, and he's part of the Jewish community in the first century. And to say something like that, if you've seen me, you've seen Yahweh Elohim. Of course, they, uh, they weren't happy hearing that message. That's right. Uh, that, that was a message that ultimately got Jesus killed. Well, let's say just a few things about the incarnation. Of course, it's a Latin term. Uh, carne means flesh or, or meat, if you will. Uh, the word incarnation is not in the Greek New Testament, of course. Uh, incarnation means enfleshment or embodiment. But the Greek expression is, uh, we have, for example, in John 1.14, and, and the word became flesh, the Greek, kai halagos sarx agenitas. So the word for flesh is uh, sarx. Uh, by the way, to be sarcastic is to cut the flesh. Mm. So that's a term that appears in a, in a number of words. Uh, and of course, uh, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity. Uh, 
Uh, he takes to himself uh, a human nature. And so the idea of the incarnation is that Jesus is a single person, but he has both a divine and human nature. Some of the early Christians who would uh, speak Greek, they would call him the Theanthropos, Theos God, Anthropos man. So Jesus is the second person of the Trinity taking a human nature and is therefore uh, God in the flesh. That's the way we kind of frame the Trinity. And in the next uh, couple programs, we'll look at uh, a lot of these ideas. Now, I, I want to I draw attention uh, to the Jehovah's Witnesses that knock on your door. Uh, I've been talking with Jehovah's Witnesses over a time span of about 40 years. Now, my, my, my first 20 years, I did it a lot more than the last 20 years. The first part of my professional uh, apologetic uh, ministry or, or vocation was working at the Christian Research Institute, where I worked under the tutelage of Walter Martin, who was the Bible answer man, wrote the uh, very influential book, The Kingdom of the Cults. Uh, but I spent a lot of time uh, studying Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, there were other people at Reasons to Believe, including Walter Martin, who had spent a lot of time. Christian Research Institute. Christian Research Institute, talking with uh, uh, various Jehovah's Witnesses. And, you know, I, I have to tell you, over that period of 40 years, I, I've only had two occasions where I really thought that I had made a breakthrough. Uh, now, think about that. Uh, you know, I, I haven't talked to Jehovah's Witnesses every single day of that 40 years, but intermittently, I would interact with them uh, either at CRI. I went to a couple meetings with a number of leading Jehovah's Witnesses. Uh, my friend Robert Bowman and I talked with them for a couple hours about various passages of Scripture. And of course, I've had many talks with them at my at the porch of my front door of my home. Uh, other people have had me come over to their home and talk with Jehovah's Witnesses. And I've done a good bit of it online now after uh, about the last 20 years, but only twice did I think I made a breakthrough. And I want to share both of those with you. Uh, by the way, the first one was an online uh, interaction, and I wrote an article, uh, a blog article, uh, Joe edited it, and it's uh, on the Reflections blog, it's available on the uh, reasons.org site, uh, but I talk about uh, the love of God, and that was um, so often uh, I have talked to Jehovah's Witnesses, and immediately uh, the Trinity or the deity of Christ comes up, and if I could characterize a lot of that conversation, it would be me saying the Bible does reveal the Trinity, Jesus is God, and the Jehovah's Witnesses would say, no, the, the Bible doesn't reveal the Trinity, and Jesus is not God, and we would go down all kinds of areas. Uh, one time when I was talking with a lady um, on Twitter, um, I actually thought I had a breakthrough because I, I changed my tactic. Uh, I, I just in, I just decided after having interactions with Muslims and, and Jews about the Trinity, I said to the lady, I said, look, let me ask you a, a very personal question. I said, uh, 
you believe that uh, you differ with the Trinity. You believe there's one God, one person, and so you adopt a Unitarian view of God. Uh, I said, who did Jehovah love in eternity before he created angels and human beings? And I'll, I would use the word Jehovah. I prefer to use the Hebrew Yahweh in reference to God, but Jehovah's Witnesses, of course, have accommodated that term. So I said, well, who did Je Jehovah love in eternity? And I actually saw a person hesitate. I could tell uh, because I began to lay it out. And I said, look, um, is Jehovah really a loving God? And, and can, you can you be a loving God if you have no one to give that love to and no love to return? Um, and I asked over a series of questions, I said, do you believe Jehovah loves you? And I said, when you knock on doors, do you tell people Jehovah loves them? Now, I really thought that um, there was a change. It was, it was no longer just kind of the rhetoric back and forth. I really thought she was looking at her life, and I wondered if she had serious doubts about whether she thought Jehovah loved her. Now, of course, uh, it changed again, and she ended up telling me how uh, unintelligent and unbiblical I was. So, uh, you know, you never know where those kind of things are going to go. But the, but the other opportunity I had, I, I went to a friend's house. He had invited a couple of Jehovah's Witnesses to come over. I think there were three uh, Jehovah's Witnesses. And he asked if I would uh, talk to them. So I did. And I led them to what I think is a very powerful line of biblical reasoning. And I, I bring all of this out in a couple of my books, without a doubt, uh, is a book I wrote in 2004, uh, 2004, 2004. And I talk a lot about uh, Jesus and his deity and his humanity, but I wanna share a little bit of this with you. And I say this for the benefit of our listeners, I really think a very powerful line of reasoning is to, to talk with people who deny the divinity of Christ in the context of this, that there are things said in the Old Testament about God, about Jehovah, about Yahweh. But the remarkable thing is that when we come to the New Testament, those things that are said to be true only of Jehovah, only of Yahweh, are in fact applied to Jesus Christ. Mm. And when I did that, I, I could tell that I had thrown a, 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 a you know, a wrench in, um, I had disturbed the thinking. And, and let me look just a couple examples here. Uh, the first one has to do with the worship of Yahweh as it's applied to Jesus Christ. And my passages here are Isaiah 45, 23, and I'll compare it with Philippians 2, 10 and 11. Here's Isaiah 45, 21 through 23. Um, was it not I, the Lord? So Yahweh is speaking, Jehovah is speaking, and the English Lord is all caps, so we know that's Yahweh. Was it not I, the Lord? And there is no God apart from me, a righteous God and a Savior. There is none but me. Turn to me and be saved all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. But myself, by myself I have sworn, my, my mouth has uttered in all integrity a word that will not be revoked. Before me, every knee will bow, 
by me, every tongue will swear. Now, what's critical there is this is Yahweh, and he's declaring that not only is he the Lord, he's God, he's Savior, and there is no other. And because of that exclusive uh, authority, every knee, all human beings will bow and their tongues will confess. Now, lo and behold, you go to Philippians 2, 10 and 11, which I'll talk a bit more about later. That's actually an ancient hymn. New Testament scholars believe that Paul had taken a, an early primitive Hebrew uh, uh, hymn that Christians sang, and he had weaved it into the biblical text. And in Philippians 2, 10 and 11, it says this, that at the at that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Well, wait a second here. Um, this worship of God is exclusive to God alone. He's the Lord. He's God. There is no Savior but Him. In the New Testament, the Apostle Paul applies this to Jesus Christ. And I could see that, uh, I could see the, the wheel turning in the heads of those Jehovah's Witnesses that I was talking with. I did the same thing with Joel uh, 2.32. So here it's now the salvation of Yahweh applied to Jesus Christ. Joel 2.32 in Romans 10.13. Joel 2.32 says, and everyone who calls on the name of the Lord, all capital letters in English, Yahweh, Lord, will be saved. Uh, and this is, this, is, this is from the Lord himself. Mount Sinai in Jerusalem, there will be deliverance. As the Lord has said, even among the survivors whom the Lord calls. Well, again, you go to the New Testament, book of Romans, chapter 10, 8 through 13. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. That is the message concerning the faith that we proclaim. If you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. For it is with your heart that you believe and are justified. It is with your mouth that you profess your faith and are saved. As scripture says, anyone who believes in him will never be put to shame. For there is no difference between Jew and Gentile. The same Lord is Lord of all and richly blesses all who call upon him. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Paul takes the very passage that applies exclusively to Yahweh or to Jehovah and applies it to Jesus. I think that's a powerful line of reasoning. Uh, you know, there, there are many ways of talking with people about the deity of Christ, but those are the only two times uh, I thought I had, you know, seen a crack Mm -hmm. uh, and of course, to speak about it theologically and spiritually, think about what Athanasius had to deal with. Uh, I mean, he spent 50 years talking to people about the heresy of Arianism. But that is a very powerful line of reasoning. And again, it, 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 is, it is consistent with what we're saying here about the incarnation, that, that this Lord God, has appeared in the world, and he's appeared in the in the person of Jesus Christ. Yeah, yeah, that, that is powerful. I could see how you could get somebody to second guess what they've been uh, teaching, uh, you know, for a long time. And 
I wonder now if, you know, there's been more fruit from those two interactions that, that maybe you don't know about even. That's very possible. Now, again, in my book, without a doubt, I have a chapter on Jesus Christ. And I, and there, there, I think I list six different things that are said to be true only of Yahweh, only of Jehovah, but then are applied to the person of Christ. Now, what I'd like to do as well is I want to address another issue that frequently comes up. Um, there are people, uh, Bart Ehrman would be a good example. Bart Ehrman was at one time an evangelical Protestant. Uh, he studied uh, theology at uh, Princeton, Princeton Seminary under Bruce Metzger, one of the leading um, New Testament uh, scholars of the 20th century. Um, I've heard that Bart Ehrman lost his faith uh, in some context because of the problem of evil, but he and others have advocated that uh, Jesus never claimed to be God, that all of these passages in John that reference Jesus as God, John is the last gospel written, it comes very late, and so there's kind of this development of ideas. Uh, Ehrman doesn't think you can really uh, know anything uh, affirmatively about Jesus in terms of the claims, but he, here's the, here is, I think, a very, very strong criticism of that idea that, um, that Jesus's deity was something that was developed you know, through decades and centuries, and that he was deified. Uh, textual scholars have discovered primitive hymns and creeds. We just looked at one in Philippians 2, which is a hymn. And what's interesting about these hymns and creeds is that they predate the books they were written in. Mm. So I want to look at just two examples here. Um, for example, this, this uh, Philippians 2, 6 through 11, it is a hymn. Now, it's believed that maybe the book of Philippians was written in the early 60s AD, maybe 61 to 62. Uh, remember that somewhere between 64 and 66, uh, Paul went dark, uh, meaning he stopped writing, meaning that he was killed in the Neronian persecution. Uh, very likely both he and Peter, uh, two, of the, two of the very significant apostles of Christianity. Well, Philippians 2 is very early. So Philippians written 61, 62, but it's likely that this hymn was sung by Christians in the 30s, mm. maybe very soon after uh, the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And let me read just uh, a couple points here of Philippians 2, who being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. The very nature of God, equality with God. It says, but rather he made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant. That word servant means slave, a bond slave. Well, there's another angle of the incarnation. We have lots of discussion about whether people in this world, whether everybody is given an equal shake. Well, here is a profound thing. Jesus, rather than holding on to the privileges of his deity, 
took, uh, made himself nothing, became a servant, became a slave uh, for us. And it says that he was found in appearances of a, the appearance as a man, and he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on the cross. And then Paul says, and at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow on heaven and on earth and every tongue confess. And what did they confess? Jesus is Lord. The Greek word for Lord is kurios. It's the equivalent of the Hebrew Yahweh. To say Jesus is Lord is to say Caesar's not. That's what got Jesus crucified. But to say Jesus is Lord is to place him on the level of Yahweh himself. So here is a hymn, and it has a high Christology, and it predates the years that Philippians was written in. Again, um, this may have been sung by Christians in the 30s or the 40s. Uh, so it appears that the primitive Christian church already had a high Christology. Uh, it didn't evolve. Now, here's another example of these creeds. Uh, and I should read you a little quote here. Uh, some people have asked the question, how do we know that these are creedal statements or confessional or hymns? Uh, and here is uh, uh, Blomberg. Um, he says that there, quote, are numerous texts of highly poetic Greek filled with tightly packed formulations of fundamental Christian doctrine in styles that often differ from those of the epistle writers themselves and which seem to be a part as self-contained entities within the letters in which they appear, prove likely candidates for early Christian creeds and confessions of faith. The clearest and most commonly cited examples are Philippians 2, 6 through 11, Colossians 1, 15 through 20, and 1 Peter 3, 18 uh, through 22. Uh, well, that's a New Testament scholar, Blomberg. So here's, uh, here is Colossians 1, 20. And again, it reads, the sun is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. Firstborn there in Greek really means preeminent one, not, not one who is created. And, and in the context, it says, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him. Um, again, this is a creedal statement. Colossians was probably written about 61 AD, but this has a high Christology. So the idea that the church invented or, or the, the church became Gentile and the Gentile Christian church invented the deity of Christ doesn't bear this idea that you have very early creedal statements and hymns, uh, but yet it carries a high Christology. So that's a challenge to people like Bart Ehrman. Yeah. Uh, Ken, for the, for the sake of those who uh, don't know how these things came to us uh, through church history, when we say that these things may have originated in the 30s, uh, is there a record of that? Uh, how were things passed along? Were they written down? Were they memorized? Was it both? Was it something else? Uh, how, how did that record come to us? Well, if you think about uh, if you think about the the apostles uh, communicating the gospel, going uh, 
you know, going around Judea, going various places, presenting the claims about Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. Joe, early on, it's going to be an oral message. Uh, it's going to be it's going to be preaching and teaching, and of course, the disciples were learners, and so this would be an oral message. Uh, but soon, it was recognized that the disciples weren't going to be around forever. Uh, and so there were books that were beginning to be written. And of course, people wonder, well, why, why would it take so long for the Gospels to be written? Some people would suggest that maybe uh, Mark is the first Gospel written. A conservative date, maybe in the 50s, uh, maybe a later date could be in, in the 60s. Uh, it would have to be in somewhere around there. Some think that uh, John might you know, be the last gospel written, and some even suggest uh, it could have been written as late as 70. Other more critical scholars might say 90, but there the idea is, well, wait a second, if Jesus was crucified somewhere maybe 30, maybe 33 AD, and we have gospels that appear 30, 40, 50 years, I mean, that seems like a long period of time, but recognize that it's going to be early on an oral message but then uh, what, what predates the oral message or what's in the middle between the oral message and then the Gospels are the writings of the Apostle Paul. Mm -hmm. uh, it's possible that Galatians is somewhere around 47 AD. Uh, so there is going to be church tradition. I, I mean, after all, uh, worship uh, is a confession of your faith. Uh, this is what's picked up by the more liturgical traditions within Christianity. Uh, so these ideas are going to rest upon the idea of looking at these biblical texts. So as uh, Blomberg points out, it's like these creeds or these hymns kind of stand out in text, and they don't quite fit with the other writings. It's, it's as if they have it's as if they've taken a quote and kind of thrown it in the middle, and it's like, whoa, this is this doesn't strike the same grammar. It's 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 of a different kind of nature, and so those are some of the reasons New Testament scholars have concluded that this needs an explanation, and the explanation is likely uh, that these come out of an oral Christian tradition. Mm -hmm. yeah, very good. It's helpful. Now, let me talk a little bit here about the idea that in the ancient world, people found it difficult uh, to believe that Jesus was a man. Of course, today, people find it difficult to believe that he is God. But let's, let's look a little bit. I mean, we've just touched upon, and again, you can go uh, to my book without a doubt. I have two chapters on Jesus in there. Uh, you can go to... Uh, my book, Seven Truths That Changed the World, I have two chapters under the designation, uh, God Walk the Earth. But I want to talk a little bit about Jesus's humanity. Uh, why do we, why have we come to the conclusion that Jesus was a fully human being, that he had a human nature? Well, Jesus himself calls himself and others call him a man. Uh, and they do this both during his earthly ministry, they do it during his resurrection, after his resurrection. 
uh, we, we find that uh, Jesus had ancestors, their genealogies, Matthew 1, Luke 3. So he's conceived supernaturally by the Holy Spirit, but he's born naturally. He has a mother. Um, he experiences normal growth and development. We get the story when he's 12 years old and entering into the temple, uh, Joseph and Mary looking for him and finding him in the temple. Then we get some interesting data that he has, uh, he's subject to real physical limitations. In John 4, he's weary. In Matthew 21, he's hungry. Matthew 8, he needs sleep. John 19, he's thirsty. Luke 22, he sweats. Matthew 4, he undergoes a temptation by the devil. And in Mark 9 and 13, he has a lack of knowledge. So he has uh, limitations. Now, I want our listeners to pay careful attention to that because that later is going to clash with two ideas. I mean, uh, for example, how could Jesus be weary and hungry and have to sleep and yet be God who, is, who has no need uh, for sleep and is never hungry well, that's going to come a little bit later as we talk about the, the two natures. But again, underscoring the idea that Jesus was a man. He suffered physical pain and death. God can't die, but Jesus died. Now, we're going to say Jesus has died in his humanity, but we'll come back to that. Here's another element that I think is really engaging. Jesus had the full range of human emotions. Uh, Luke 10 and John 17, he experiences joy. Matthew 26, sorrow. John 11, love. Matthew 9, compassion. John 11, we he weeps at Lazarus's death. In uh, Luke 7, he expresses astonishment. And in Mark 3, he's angry. So, you know, there is a heresy that Jesus wasn't a man. Docetism. He only looked like a man. Again, in the ancient world, they had problems with the idea that God would somehow take a human nature. Uh, in the modern world, we're okay with him being man. It's his deity that troubles us. Then in Mark 14, uh, Jesus experiences loneliness. This is, this is at the Garden of Gethsemane. And uh, Jesus starts to have doubts. Uh, Lord, is it possible this cup could could pass from me. If, if possible, let it pass, but not thy, not my will, thine be done. His disciples are uh, not very helpful. You know, we live at a time, Joe and Dave, during the pandemic where loneliness is off the charts. There are so many people that suffer with depression and anxiety mm -hmm. uh, who feel in light of technology, in light of social media, in light of uh, Facebook. I know with my kids, they grew up differently than me. Um, you know, when I was in school, we all knew after school, you go home, get a snack, and then meet at the baseball field, and we're going to play ball. Um, you know, my kids, particularly my son, he spent a lot of time interacting with his friends on, on you know, uh, social media. Well, there's a loneliness. There's a time, I think, to get away from technology. Uh, there's a time to, to interact with people. Well, if you, have, if you have the struggle with loneliness or you know people who do, I think that's where you can say, look, uh, 
the Lord knew what it was like to be lonely. God is not somehow disconnected from us. Uh, he, can, he can empathize with us because he's God has experienced loneliness through his human nature. And I think that's powerful. Now, the last element here of the Jesus's human nature, I want to talk about the essential qualities that he has of being a human being. Again, this, this will come back as we uh, a bit later talk about, uh, is it a contradiction to have divine qualities and human qualities at the same time? Well, here's what scripture says about, uh, about Jesus as a human being. He has a body in Matthew 26, bones in Matthew 24, flesh in Luke 24. He has blood in Matthew 26. He has a soul, Matthew 26, a will, John 5, a spirit, John 11. J Jesus had a real human nature. Uh, Jesus was the second person of the Trinity but he took on a human nature. And as the creeds talk about him, he's fully God and, and uh, fully man. Now, let me pause, see if there's anything you guys want to talk about before we kind of look at the creedal statements about Jesus's divinity and humanity. I just think it's interesting what you said earlier about uh, the challenge of establishing that Jesus was human uh, for the early church. Whereas it's the other way around today, we seem to struggle over the fact that uh, he can be divine. And um, I remember um, not, just a little while ago, listening to uh, an audiobook, Augustine's City of God, where he goes through all those gods. And it's like, well, I don't remember all these from my Greek mythology class. There's, there's more than I realized. And he goes through and uh, reasons through, tells you why each one uh, you know, fall short. Uh, but it, that was the kind of world where there were all sorts of gods. That's, that's exactly right. Uh, the Greco-Roman civilization had many gods. I mean, I always thought it was kind of odd that the Romans kind of accommodated the Greek gods and then gave them Roman names, but mm -hmm. you're actually dealing with, with polytheism. And the amazing thing is, Joe, that in the first 500 years of Christian history, Christianity uh, had taken over paganism. It had disappeared. Uh, it had it had been converted to to Christianity. But, but yeah, you think about all of those deities, and you have docetism. the The Greek word doseo means to seem. So the idea. Uh, and John the Apostle seems to be familiar with it because he says those who say that Jesus has not come in the flesh, they're not of God. He seems to be aware of that early docetism, but docetism will grow into possibly one of the greatest or greatest heresies called Gnosticism, where physical things are bad, spiritual things are good, and Christianity is reinterpreted in a Gnostic context. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, let's talk a bit more about the creed of Chalcedon. Uh, there are many church councils, um, and, and if I could make a case for the, the need to study church history, um, you know, we, we live in a world today where many Christians don't see themselves connected to Christian history. Um, you know, they, 
they have a Bible and they worship at their church and they don't know a lot about Christian history. And much of much of the things that are significant about Christianity have been hammered out at these councils. And so what's interesting is some of Christianity's brightest minds, some of the most devout people, some of the people that were part of these councils and creeds ended up giving their life for the Lord. So they were very devout. They were very dedicated to their faith. They were also some of the most brilliant people in church history, uh, really the most, some of the most brilliant people in all of Western civilization. And they thought about these issues. They thought about the truth of the incarnation, that uh, they affirmed the triune nature of God, but the second person, the Son, had taken a human nature. Uh, they realized to talk about divinity and humanity, having a union in the person of Jesus Christ, raised certain concerns. I mean, God has no limitations whatsoever. Humans are very limited. How could these seemingly conflicting qualities or characteristics be attributed to the same person? So let me read uh, a little bit here of the Creed of Chalcedon. Uh, it comes out of the Council of Chalcedon, which was held in 451, 451. And it's all about the one person of Christ in two natures. So this is the Chalcedonian formula, if you will. Jesus was one person in two natures. Uh, and here's a part of it. It says, the same perfect in Godhead and also perfect in manhood, truly God and truly man of a rational soul and body, co-essential with the Father according to the Godhead, co-substantial with us according to the to our manhood in all things like unto us without sin, begotten before all ages uh, of the Father according to the Godhead, and in these last days for us and for our salvation, born of the Virgin Mary, the mother of God, according to the manhood, one and the same Christ, Son, Lord, only begotten, to be acknowledged in two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinction of nature, natures being uh, no means taken away by the union, but rather, but rather the property of each nature being preserved and concurring in one person and one subsistence, not parted or divided by into two persons. So the Christian message of the incarnation was hammered out. And uh, the incarnation teaches that God made an appearance in the world, that he was a single person, uh, but he had two natures. Uh, and, and I think that we can highlight some of this. I'm taking again this from my book, Without a Doubt, again, a chapter I have on the person of Christ. Here's, a, here's just a, a number of points to think about in terms of the incarnation. So first, Jesus is one person. He has two distinct natures, fully divine nature and a fully human nature, and therefore he is the God-man. Second, we can say that he has two natures, but he remains a single unified person, not two persons. Now that's going to be a challenge, and we're going to tackle that in our second program on this topic. But we can also say that uh, before the incarnation, Jesus, or now we'll have to refer to him as the Son, he had one nature. 
but at the incarnation, he took a second nature, uh, and he shares that nature. He has that nature now, and so in seeing God as a single person in two natures, that was a rejection of the heresy of Nestorianism that said that Jesus was two people. Third, we can say that... Before you uh, go on, Ken, can you say a little bit about what what constitutes a nature? I, I want to say more about that in the next program. Okay. But I'll, but I'll, but I'll say something about it now. So okay. when we think about... When we think about it philosophically and theologically, um, we have a human nature. Uh, maybe the Greeks would say, you know, a dog or a cat, it has an, an animal nature, a, a cat nature, a dog nature. Um, maybe the tree has a, has a tree nature, qualities and characteristics that are true of that particular thing. What I would say now, and we'll add to in the next time we talk about this topic, Dave, is that to be a human being is to have a mind, to have a will, to have uh, emotions, if you will. Uh, so a, a human nature would involve both a mind and a will, that we have cognition and that we were willful beings. Now, in the next program, we'll talk a little bit about that because where we go with that is Jesus has a divine mind and a divine will, and he has a human mind and a human will. But here's the, here's the challenge. Here's the difficulty. He's not two people. Now, how is that possible? Well, part of it's going to be a mystery that we may never completely comprehend, but in the second program, I want to talk about some possible models of explanation. Maybe there, maybe there are ways we can talk about this that could show that there is a way this could conceivably be true and yet avoid logical contradiction. Okay. So na think of nature being the mm -hmm. essence of a being, if you will. So it's a, the thing that's a little difficult and. I hope you can clarify this is distinguished between personhood and nature. Yeah, we'll we'll talk about that. We'll and and I would make the point even of the Trinity. The Trinity, God is one what and three who's. He's one in terms of being or nature or essence, but three in personhood. So there there are these distinctions that are made. But let's pick up a couple more points. Uh, another thing we can say is that uh, through Jesus's divine nature, uh, he's uh, the son of God. Uh, he shares that essence with the Father and the Spirit. So when Jesus was on earth through his divine nature, he was doing all the things that God does. Uh, but in his human nature, he was here on, on planet earth. Uh, and so this is a rejection of the Arian heresy. The Arians said that God created the Son. Uh, so he was a creature, and then through him created all other things. So here is, here is the purpose of these creeds. They're being challenged. That They being historic Christianity is being challenged. It's being pushed around. There are heresies, Gnosticism. Docetism, Arianism, not unlike our world today. 
Well, we've got liberals pushing at us. We've got secularists pushing at our faith. We've got challenges. This is where I like to say that I think there are things we can learn from the past and, and we can model. Uh, and there are, of course, mistakes made in the past. Maybe we can avoid making those mistakes. Uh, point five, uh, the properties or attributes of both natures may be properly predicated of the one person. So in other words, uh, the one person, Jesus Christ, retains all of the attributes of both natures. So in his divine nature, he's omniscient. In his human nature, he lacks knowledge. I mean, Jehovah's Witnesses will say to me, wait a second, Ken, um, how can Jesus be God? How can Jesus be Jehovah when he doesn't know the, the timing of his second coming? Or how can, how can Jesus say the Father is greater than I? Well, remember his identity. He is God in human flesh. He's God in man. As a man, he can say the Father is greater than he is. Looking through his human nature, he doesn't know the timing of his second coming. Now, we'll look at that again in our next program. Now, another point, I'm going to call this point six, the union of the two natures is not an indwelling or a mere occupancy of space, but a personal union. Uh, that is... Uh, Jesus's divinity and humanity is united in one person. And here's my analogy, the same way we're body and soul united. So if you want to think about how God could take a human nature, well, how is it that as a human being, I could have a soulish nature, uh, yet have a, a bodily nature and yet be a union of the two? Point seven, the two natures cohere and interpenetrate in a personal union so that the human is never without the divine, the divine was never without the human, but the two natures, they don't mix, they don't mingle. Now that'll be important later when we get to the question, how is this not violating the law of non-contradiction? I mean, Jesus is tired and hungry and dies and suffers and yet God never gets tired, never hungers, and God can't die. God, by definition, cannot suffer. So how do, we, how do we think through those kinds of things? Well, the natures don't mix and mingle, which means that the humanity doesn't drag down the divinity, and the di divinity doesn't divinize the humanity. Uh, and, and thus, Early Christianity rejected the idea that there was one fused nature, sometimes called the Eutychian heresy or the heresy of monophysitism. So the, the nature of God and human is mixed and becomes a third thing. That was rejected. The human nature is not deified. The, the divine nature is does not suffer limitation. And point number 10, the word nature refers to essence to substance, being, we're talking here ontology, uh, and so the two natures are inseparable, unmixed, and unchanged. Now, all of this to say that the early Christians affirmed four things about the incarnation. One, Jesus Christ is fully and entirely God. Two, Jesus Christ is fully and entirely human, true man, true God, Three, the two natures of Christ, God and man, are distinct. They're distinct, not separated. Four, the two natures of Christ, God and man, are united in the one person. 
Now, again, Dave raises a question that many people have raised through church history and skeptical thinkers raise today. How can you have, uh, how can you have seemingly a human mind and human will and a divine mind and a divine will united in a single individual, but not have two people? Mm. Well, we're going to save that philosophical challenge for the next time we meet. But again, I want to underscore how important I think this doctrine is on so many levels. Uh, I think it is a response to the hiddenness of God challenge that is increasingly set forth. It's the, the idea of the hiddenness of God. Uh, John Schellenberg is one of the leading atheists who have set this forth. The idea that if God is real and if God wants people to know him, then why are there people out there who are not, uh, you know, they're not resistant of God, but they, they see no reason to believe in him. Maybe God isn't done his job. Well, uh, I think it's very difficult to argue in a Christian context that God is somehow hidden when he's made an appearance in the world. Now, of course, people, atheists sometimes are asked, what would it take for you to believe in God? You know, Carl Sagan, uh, Richard Dawkins, you know, maybe if God wrote his name in the sky or some of these kinds of things. I, I suspect that whatever God would do, they would find some reason to uh, not believe it. But it's difficult to reject the incarnation. Now, uh, as we mentioned earlier, liberal theologians, Jesus can't be God. Well, there are these early creeds and hymns that have a high Christology. Some people would like all religions to be true, but if the incarnation is true, they can't all be right. Mm -hmm. And immediately Christianity would be given preference. And there are people knocking at your door. I mean, the, God, the Mormons have three gods. They're tritheists. The Jehovah's Witnesses are Arian. And, and again, I like to emphasize for contemporary Christians how much information and, and how critical these ideas are in church history. It's certainly true that as a Christian, you have a personal relationship with God. But it's also true that Christianity is a world movement. And people were hammering out these things long, long before any of us were, were alive. So, guys, what do, you, uh, what do you think of this? What do you think of Packer's statement? The more you think about it, the more staggering it gets. Nothing in fiction is so fantastic as the truth of the incarnation. If it's yeah. true, if it's mm -hmm. true, then God has suffered. He suffered through his human nature in Christ. Yeah. Uh, along those lines, um, I, I think it was you, Ken, who brought to our attention uh, either the title of a book or something along, along the lines of The Visited Planet. That was the name of it. I yeah. forgot who the author was. But usually when people think of that, they think of, oh, have we been visited by beings from outer space? But that wasn't the point. It was that God has come to this planet. And yeah. isn't that an amazing thing? Who was the author? You know what I'm talking about. I think you brought it to our attention. Yes, yes. Uh, The Visited Planet. Uh, uh, I, it was a Christian author in the 20th century. Yeah. 
mm -hmm. had described it. Yeah. Well, I mean, even, even in the 13th century, Joe, Thomas Aquinas considered the question of life in outer space. And he said that it was, it was, it was possible, but improbable, but even, even um, Aquinas raised the question, if God were to save creatures in other worlds, would he have to become incarnate? That's how tied salvation is. And by the way, could, could I make this, could I make this point? Um, I think a lot of times we talk about salvation by grace. Protestants emphasize through faith alone, in Christ alone. But I would add that's only possible because of the incarnation. He, because he's God and man, he can reconcile God and man. Because he's God and man, he's, he's able to operate on the basis of those two. So such a critical idea. And again, I come back to history, you know, when I, I, when I stepped foot on the Queen Mary, I'm thinking, you know, JFK was here. Hmm. Winston Churchill was here. Um, this there really are ghosts there now. There, there, the yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's right. You may, you may not want to stay the night there, uh, <laughs> but I, I love history and it, uh, and to think as Tolkien and Lewis said that, uh, this incredible, this incredible truth that, that God has come to, to our world and lived among us, suffered among us interacted with us. I mean, Jesus wept at the death of Lazarus, even though he's going to raise him from the dead. You know, he sensed the, the sorrow, the depth of, of grief in all of these kinds of things. And uh, I think it's a remarkable truth, it, it, mm -hmm. a transforming truth. Yeah. Well, thank you, Ken. And very practical, too, as uh, I've been listening to your comments, we get the historical uh, background and the, the fact that the church has wrestled with this, but has uh, established some parameters for us. And you also let off with some very practical helps by showing Jehovah's Witnesses in particular, uh, those two passages of scripture from the Old and New Testament. So very practical help. I'm going to try that next time someone comes knocking on my door. So I like it. I like appreciate it. Appreciate that. Yeah. Don't you, uh, by the way, go pretty well extending into the nature and the person of Christ in your God Among Sages book. That's true. That's a third book. And, uh, and of course, that would be very relevant for our discussion today because I look at the, the hymns and the creeds. I respond hmm. to the idea that uh, maybe Jesus was deified over a long period of time. And I contrast uh, the person of Jesus with the other great religious leaders, Krishna, Buddha, Confucius, and Muhammad. Yes, that would be another book. And the context of that would be among the world's religions. Yeah. Um, you know, in, in many ways, uh, I see my personal ministry, uh, and it's gone on uh, a long time, and I'm very happy about that, that I've been working in apologetics for more than 35 years. But it is those truths that I, I feel a deep uh, sense of calling to defend, to explain and defend the Trinity, the incarnation, the atonement, the resurrection, and, and why I think they're not only true, but they're consistent with reason. 
Great. All right. Well, we'll pick it up in the second podcast where you're going to discuss more about whether the doctrine of the incarnation is coherent and we'll get some apologetic value from that. So we'll look forward to that. Let us know your comments and questions. You can reach Ken via his Twitter handle at RTB underscore K samples. And don't miss any episodes of Straight Thinking. You can subscribe to the Reasons to Believe podcast and uh, you'll get an episode delivered to you each week. Uh, A couple of people have written in, Ken, here a couple of comments we can share now. Here's one, Ken, it seems you have ramped up the publication of articles and teachings and experiences in your Christian life and are now sharing them on Facebook. Thanks, brother, I am enjoying. That's from Brian Craig. Thank you for that. And here's another one, I, I just ordered classic Christian thinkers I read Christianity cross-examined recently and really got a lot out of it, Tom Warner. So it's good to hear that people are reading your books and uh, other things that you're putting on Facebook and Twitter and and whatnot. So thank you uh, for writing in. We appreciate that. Okay, that's going to wrap it up for Ken Samples and Dave Rogstad. This is Joe Aguirre with a reminder that the goal of apologetics is not victory, but truth. Thanks for listening and join us for the next edition of Straight Thinking. Thank you for listening. Your prayers and financial support are reaching people with reasons for faith in Jesus Christ, our Creator and Savior. To allow Reasons to Believe programs like this to continue, make your gift today at reasons.org.